0: The future of fitness is here. Be a part of it. NASM's new virtual coaching course will equip you with the skills, tools, and strategies necessary to launch, operate, or transition your current fitness or wellness business to a successful virtual coaching business. As a virtual coaching specialist, you'll open yourself up to a whole new world of opportunities, being able to help clients from around the world anywhere and anytime. It's the ultimate flexibility as a trainer while also creating new revenue streams. Start the next phase of your training career with NASM's Virtual Coaching Specialization. Sign up today at nasm.org or call 1-800-460-6276. You're
1: listening to the NASM CPT Podcast with Rick Ritchie, the official podcast of the National Academy of Sports Medicine.
0: Welcome to the NASM CPT Podcast. My name is Rick Ritchie, and today I am, it's my honor to welcome back uh, a friend of ours at NASM and certainly has been one of my favorite people to be in conversation with. I had the opportunity to to interview him before, and since then, he has been a part or come on board NASM as a part of the Scientific Advisory Board. He spoke at the NASM Optima Conference on a, on a topic that's very relevant and, and near and dear to my heart specifically, so about diabetes and kind of the state of the, the states as it, as it goes. And he's really focused a lot on sports psychology and mental and physical well-being, and he's got such a wonderful, gentle approach for somebody that's in the fight business. I want to welcome back Tony Ritchie. It's good to have you with us, sir.
1: Oh, Dr. Rick, thanks uh for having me back. And always always great to be a part of NASM, every part of it. I love it, whether it's um Optima uh joining the board, which I'm very honored about and, and would like to thank you for taking a large role in helping facilitate that. And so always happy to be back here. It's it's a great organization and team. Well, man, listen, I really uh I I enjoyed talking to you the first time around, but I think a
0: lot of it was because like, I didn't necessarily know that you were back and forth in, in the city and, you know, you would work in fight sports and I've done a lot with fight sports as a, as a younger man for sure, but still going to classes and, and getting my backside handed to me. And, uh, and so anyway, it was fun for me to talk about fight sports with you and some of the opportunities that have come up with some of the elite athletes and fighters uh, that you've worked with, namely People like Matt Sarah, and Chris Weidman uh, who who you're working with out of their facility and then the, the fight camps that you're a part of. Now, that stuff, that's cool to me. I don't want to spend our time digging into that because I think we accidentally went there last time and we talked, <laughs> we talked almost <laughs> the whole time about it. Uh, this time, I want to talk a little bit more about, I guess, our relationship. So what, what it is that you do. So... You know, reintroduce yourself to the people, and then I want to talk about the conversations you've had about the scientific advisory board for NASM and what that means for you, and what that means for NASM to have a scientific advisory board.
1: Okay, wonderful. So, just uh, briefly, my background in is an amalgamation. Really, it's a a lot of it's interdisciplinary. So, I've spent my years in athletic performance. I've been involved with it since I'm about 19 years old and started as an undergraduate physical education, exercise physiology major, and then went on to do a master's degree in nutrition, master's degree in exercise phys, a separate one, a doctorate in uh, science and nutritional sciences, and then completed what was really important to me is a uh, doctorate of education in sports psychology. So that's my background and I'm really happy to be joining the NASM team. So my first experience with NASM is I'm a professor of exercise science, sports science and nutrition at Long Island University, Brooklyn. And we have a wonderful setup there in which our students take the NASM courses, whether it's the performance enhancement specialist, corrective exercise specialist, uh, now the certified nutrition coach, as well as the certified personal trainer. And that is actually a three credit course. And wow. the students take that three credit course. And what's wonderful about it, at the end of the course, they take the exam, whether it be the P.S. or the C.S. And one of our objectives was to have our students leave our program with a master's of science, but then have the NASM initials after that, because a lot wow. of times they'll go out in the field. Rick, And what will happen is, hey, this is great. You got your, your MS and strength and conditioning, but you need your CES too. You need your P.S. So our students leave with three credit courses that are highly relevant to their track and they leave with those credentials. So that's where my relationship with NASM started, working with uh, Eric and Brian Sutton, as an example, for some seven years now and putting those courses together. And as time progressed, uh, I, I was contacted by NASM to also take a role in speaking at Optima. And then that went on, and I had the fortunate opportunity to meet you. And from that, uh, I've worked with Mike Fontagrassi for years now, another great individual at NASM. And and it may seem like I'm saying this because I'm on a NASM podcast, but (laughs) it's not why I'm saying it. Uh, It's a wonderful group of individuals that love what they do. And what I admire about all of you is your concerted effort and passion To bring great products to the industry to shape this industry and and to bring the best available to the fitness trainer the strength coach and the the what's really wonderful is how you try to get every subject matter to them to give them a nice background in everything on nutrition personal training corrective exercise performance enhancement it's all there so my experience with the organization has been wonderful Right now, joining the Scientific Advisory Board, is an, it's an honor. I'm excited about it. And as I continue to work with the team, I will learn too how I can be of help to the organization, how I could perhaps facilitate what's already a wonderful vision, a wonderful direction, and a wonderful course of action. So I'm really excited to be here and join in with a great, great group of individuals
0: man thank you so much that's uh i mean i've worked with a company for a very long time and i'd be hard pressed to be even as flattering as you were just now it was beautiful thank you so much for that Uh, i appreciate it and i know nasm does i want to back up to something that you said before we move forward one of the things you said and i get a lot of questions about this because i require the same thing which is i i own gyms in new york city independent trainers wanna train out of my facility. And sometimes they'll say I have a bachelor's degree, right? So you went, this person went to school for four years. They did a primary course of study. They did far more than you would do in any single one certification. And yet we require certifications. Same thing, I've had people come in with master's degrees and still we we require certifications. Now, one of the reasons that I guess we do that is that your your bachelor's of science in exercise science or ex phys or whatever? Kines, um that that that's all, you, you've earned that and you will always have that. Your master's degree, you earned it and you will always have it. But with that being said, you don't have to do anything to keep it. Mm-hmm. Right? It is it Great. is a deep course of study, no doubt. Great point. But there's nothing. That is designed that says, okay, in order for you to maintain your master's, you have yep. to keep doing this. So with that said, you could be five, 10 years out of school. All of that course of study that you did it, it could be content that's outdated. It could be stuff that you just let yourself forget because that's what happens when you don't make those applications over and over again. A certification, on the other hand, requires ongoing um, uh, continuing education. Now, this is what, so for instance, a medical doctor, same thing. Right. They keep their their distinction as a medical doctor, but they are licensed and or registered in every state that they work in. And in order to keep working as a physician, they must continue to do uh, education ongoing. And so anyway, what I'm saying is, and what I'm trying to create and understanding around is yes, if you graduated with your masters, you know more than the person that just took the NASM CPT. You just have more content in your head. You did multiple classes, but it is very important for us to understand that keeping people's feet to the fire, keeping their people's faces in books and learning and continuing education is so very important and i've known a lot of people throughout my years who have have gotten certifications they let them lapse they have degrees and they say i just don't need it i know more than most people anyway and if that's the case then just renew your certification right. because there's no way you can prove that you know more than most people if you don't have anything to show for it so that's that's where that comes in and that's a that's a soapbox for me because Tony, I'm pretty highly educated and I'm Very certified. Edgy. So I don't I don't think that anybody that comes into any of my gyms who says, you know, I'm this smart and I don't need to be certified, you're definitely barking up the wrong tree if you're trying to sell that to me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well one just quickly and I'll I'll I will uh, just add to that, Rick. That's perfectly stated. Um, because people have said that, uh, you know, hey Tony, you seem educated. I'm not educated. I'm educating. I'm never educated. Past tense. Uh, to your point, <laughs> I am, well I'm said. Educating. It's it's a verb. I don't have. Um, I you know. It. So so to your that is exactly it. So the way I view education, education is a personal trainer for me. Yes, I'm going to read data and I'm going to read research. But if I do a course or I am taking a formal uh, accredited college course, that professor is telling me, hey, Tony, I need you to do this much work by this time, get it done effectively, get it done efficiently. That's what a personal trainer does. And Mm -hmm. NASM, as personal trainers, we should look at NASM as also our trainer to guide us in the effective knowledge we will need that is most relevant based on the latest research. Here's how we should learn it. Here's how we should apply it. And here's the reasonable time frame in which we need to know it. That's called certification. So personal trainers have personal trainers. And certification is in essence uh, an ongoing trainer for us. So I I wholeheartedly agree with you on that.
0: Yep. Great stuff. Man, th- thanks for backing me up on that. <laughs>
1: i just you know i know that people are going to school with you
0: and they're wondering you know we're getting all of this education but we're still required to take certifications and it is nice to know that you're going to walk out of a program not just with a degree but with active certifications that all you have to do is maintain once you leave so uh shout out to to what you guys are doing at long island university there in brooklyn and your ongoing uh, support of not just NASM, but support of education within exercise science, which you know I'm I'm 100 behind. Now I want let's talk about a couple more things before we get into your very specific and focused field on kind of just um, sports psychology, and then I want to hit the that performance nutrition concepts that that we've been batting around with NASM, um, but you did speak about the The state of the states and, mm-hmm. and regarding diabetes. and I just yes. want you to to give us an overview of what that was. If you don't mind, just a couple minutes. i don't I don't need you to 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 represent your your optimus session, but
1: just what what were some of the topics there? Yes, I, you know what? I would love to, Rick, and I'll tell you why it, I think my students, obviously, well, I should say my students, it's obvious to them, uh, are tired of me talking about sometimes, Type two. And the reason for that is independent of what academic discipline I'm teaching, it comes back to that. And just so an overview of the numbers first, and then why I'm so alarmed about it is in the United States right now, we have about 31 states that have greater than a 30% obesity rate, 22 are greater than 30% obesity nine states and this is of 2018 we haven't got to 2019 data due to covid so we have nine states that have an obesity rate of greater than 35 percent just think about that greater than 35 percent and obesity is married to type 2. type 2 in most cases there are exceptions is married to obesity as we know right There are unequivocally genetic exceptions and rare instances and the numbers that we are looking at, potentially, if we don't drive a change in our behavior and our nutritional practices and activity uh, practices, is about one, nearly one in two adults by 2030 being pre-diabetic or diabetic. Now, that's 50, nearly 50% of the adult population. As pre-diabetic or type 2 diagnosed clinically as type 2 with a greater than you know 126 milligrams per deciliter of blood sugar two or three times consecutively. And the alarming thing about that, I refer to diabetes as um human rusting, if you will. Mm-hmm. And and the problem with that type 2 is that something rarely does happen immediately that's alarming. Because I wish it would, honestly, Rick. And I say this like if someone were type two, I wish they'd wake up one morning and get dizzy because maybe that would be the bell to say, "Uh oh, something's really wrong and we have to make a change. But this condition, as we understand it, destroys almost every system in the body. And it does so, so subtly without us knowing until one day we wake up with a neuropathy and foot pain, an infection in the foot retinopathy and blurred vision okay and that neuropathy by the way does not just affect the diabetic neuropathy and nerve pain it affects the cardiovascular system every system in the body the kidneys are impacted we know that the brain is impacted literally the gums are impacted anything that has a small blood vessel will be negatively impacted and potentially permanently damaged by type 2 if we don't reverse our behaviors. And that's where my alarm comes in because it's a devastating condition. And there are people that survive it. I have family members that have lived quite a long time with it, but their quality of life has been completely compromised. So there are two reasons for it that I feel such a passion. One, I don't want anyone's quality of life being compromised. And two, independent of how you feel about healthcare. In the U.S., whatever side you're on, I get it. If you think there should be better cost strategies within the private sector, wonderful. If you think we need a, a public healthcare delivery system, great. That's not what I'm here for. The problem is if you have 50% of your adult population with nine or seven separate, disease pathologies or disease states due to one disease, type two, we're not gonna be able to handle that. It doesn't matter how you try to deliver healthcare. We can't have people at 55 years of age, which is a very young individual that are already in need, perhaps of multiple medications or, or suffering in vision, nerve pain, neuropathies, infections, immunosuppressant. And we've even seen that Unfortunately, with COVID, where we know that obesity and type 2 diabetes are having a really large impact on not, and not so much who's catching it, because it's, it's highly contagious, but those who are suffering the greatest consequences. So as I say to my students, preventing type 2 is not just for the trainer, in essence. You know, this is a social issue. It's a political issue, it's a socioeconomic issue, and it's a moral issue. Because this disease has shown us that not a single part of our body, and we don't even know the negative impacts on the brain yet, right? But there's not a system in the human body that is not negatively impacted by having hyperglycemia and sustained levels of high blood sugar. And that's my urgency to try to help us really continue to reverse the condition because, it it's uh it's an, it's an, it's what I would say in a, a national emergency as it pertains to our health.
0: I just don't understand how your students can get tired of listening to you talk about yeah. it you're You're so passionate <laughs> to to hear yeah. you talk man so passionate um so so informed, and the way that you deliver that is um it it means a lot to me as uh as somebody with type 2 diabetes. And it's been something that, since I was diagnosed in 2018, um, March 15th, the Ides of March. That was okay. a, a monumental moment in, in my life. And um, I've learned a lot about this. And so um, I want to share something. As, as I'm working on it's a personal project about exercise and type 2 diabetes, um, the um, type of course that I'm putting together as a personal project. Mm. And I interviewed a friend of mine. He is a boyhood friend that I knew my, you know, my, my parents and his parents were friends, my older brother and his older brother are the same age. So he and I are the same age and six months apart. And he was diagnosed in the early 2000, 2001, I believe. And he recently developed something called Charcot foot. And through that, and uh, there was a uh, severe neuropathy, and what was interesting about the neuropathy is neuropathy can can lead to not feeling things but also can lead to incredible pain when you feel things of a of a hyper um pain sense and so he had a broken bone in his foot that he didn't know about, wow. and he couldn't really feel he knew his foot hurt can couldn't feel anything, and it, he's walking around on the broken bone, making it worse as that bone is poking into other parts of the tissue, and um, anyway, my, a friend of mine, my age, just had his, his leg amputated about six inches below the knee. Below the knee, thank goodness, but it becomes necrotic. It starts to, to exactly. spread, and one of the things you said, and this is what people don't know about type 2 diabetes, is that. It's a blood vessel disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know I mean, it, it's what ends up happening is that? So you said, quote, "anything with a small blood vessel. everything has a small blood <laughs> vessel. Every, maybe your Very teeth important. on the yeah. outside, even the inside have blood vessels. Um, everything has blood vessels and it damages blood vessels. So when people are concerned about diabetes, they're concerned about everything because the high glycemic, um, thick uh, sugary blood and we talk about it like well we urinate that out well you urinate it out what you can what you can't stays in the blood and just continues to create damage in the in endothelium the and the blood vessels helps to create um, more inflammation inflammation creates more damage that damage creates more arthrosclerosis and it continues it continues and continues and so that's why it's very important. I'll, I'll have probably an in-depth conversation about this specific pathology in the future, but it's what people don't know. It's not just about your blood sugar. Right. It's about what it does to everything else. And if it, you got a blood vessel in your body, especially the small blood vessels, now that's called a microvascular disease, but it has macrovascular implications, can create damage. Yeah, and so when when we talk about it, and all in your mind, maybe you think about is high blood sugar is just high blood sugar. It is never just high blood sugar, exactly. and that's why your A1Cs have to come down. That's why your 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 blood glucose checking the numbers, making sure you're doing the pinpricks pricks and all that stuff, so that you can stay con- in control. All right, um, that, that that's enough of that. My goodness, I, because I know that we both can can go down that that rabbit hole and we can get lost in it. Um, what I do want to talk about now is kind of your, I I guess your bread and butter for what you've been doing for quite some time now. And, and you even said that your, your doctorate in education is put in tandem with, uh, a, a psychology or sports psychology. And I know that you deal with kind of the psychology of sport, the psychology of exercise and in uh, there's probably some congruency with what my dissertation was on uh, regarding attribution theory and attributional retraining, uh, which is in essence, finding out what people are blaming for why they are not being mm-hmm. successful at exercise adherence and trying to re-attribute what people are blaming. Because you can't, you can't control what you can't control. And everybody likes to point at things that they can't control and say, that's the reason why and then dismiss any self-efficacy that can be put on top of that. And I don't mean that disparagingly, it is just what we do. And we kind of make the, the correlation between sports and sports teams, right? So I'm a, I'm a huge Alabama football fan. <laughs> and when Alabama wins, I say, we won. <laughs> I didn't do anything, but we won. Uh and when they lose, I generally say they lost. They lost. You get it. <laughs> and and so we we put ourselves with the winner and we disassociate from the loser, but that again is we put it in somebody else's fate to decide how we associate. How are we associating these things? How are we taking control? Um, how are we creating the the motivational strategies and we hear these things, internal and external motivation? But also know that effort is, cannot be discounted when it comes to this. So anyway, with that being said, as kind of a, a preference with some of, uh, pref- uh, with some of the things that I've done some study on, I'd like to know what is your primary focus with what you do and how you make those applications?
1: Okay, great. And I think, and for today, sure, I do some work with it, you know, on the advanced uh, and elite athlete level, but I'd like to keep it very much nutrition and and exercise focused today because, uh, you know, that's where we are largely, not exclusively at NASM. We look at performance enhancement to a large extent, too. But even as even we just referred to is with type two is how do we get people to change the behavior Mm -hmm. for the positive? And you brought up a wonderful point in your discussion of those theories, Rick, is that, you know, we, we will look first for, in many cases, why we can't. and or what is in the way or what is the obstacle? And the obstacle always will appear bigger than a potentially a small road in which we can sneak through. But there's a couple of things that I'm learning as we progress through it and the mental side of it and the mental performance side. And for individuals like yourself and me and everybody at NASM and and many of the great team members and certified members of NASM, you know, fitness is our life and we love it and we dedicate time to it. Things, it, it is the first on our list in many cases. Sure, family should be there first, maybe education, job. But nevertheless, we spend a lot of effort, time, and dedication toward that. And to your point, there are areas where I'm an absolute dumpster fire in my life. I mean, I don't do a good job. Sure. But fitness is not one of them. I do pretty well. And I do yeah. pretty well with diet. And I do pretty well with a couple of other things. However, what, I, what I've begun to realize through the years and whether you want to credit things or, or like client-centered counseling and motivational interviewing is I be, I've begun to realize we really have to meet the client where they are, what it, you know what they know at the time, what they can apply and what's available to them. And what I mean is that it's okay for people not to feel our passion. Toward fitness mm-hmm. and the extreme love of physical activity, the extreme love of eating well. It's okay for them not to fully understand the magnitude of how wonderful it is for you. It is even okay to hear from them occasionally. Well, it's you know not on the priority for me or or I'm not motivated. We have to work within that context because all of us have a certain amount. Or we should say a a bandwidth of discipline, a a bandwidth of dedication that we could apply towards something. And when you have an individual that maybe works 13, 14 hours a day, they're caring for perhaps their parents, they have... A spouse who is working hard. They have two or three kids. They have to take these kids to sporting events. They have to, again, work hard at their job. Maybe they're undergoing certification courses to maintain a license, as an example. We have to remember that they are expending so much time, energy, dedication, discipline to the things that they feel are a priority. And it's and they are a priority. So as we move down the list, it's hard for them sometimes, Rick, to be like, gung-ho have discipline left right to oh i'm gonna work out five days a week i'm gonna eat tilapia and broccoli every day doesn't work that way and i don't have that discipline in the other five or six things in my life that are down the chain so my point to this is in terms of what am i learning is where do we meet them Where do we renegotiate exactly what you said instead of saying, Oh, that's nonsense all the time. Oh, that's an excuse. That's baloney. Here's what we got to do. Adhering to rigid guidelines about exercise activity. It absolutely must be 150 minutes a week. What we have to do is negotiate and work with them and say, okay, here's where you are. I understand that when I go running me personally, I'm done running or, I feel like a million bucks. There are people who generally can go for a jog and they don't get a run as high. They're not designed like us. So we get we grow to understand that and we do exactly what you said in your dissertation work. Okay, we find some things that are potentially... Uh, realistic for them? Is it walking more often? Is it increasing activity of daily living? Is it getting them to eat reasonable three to four days a week in the beginning and allowing some liberty on those other days? Our goal is to make them healthier than they were previously and find those strategies and try to integrate them in collaboration in terms of what you also mentioned, giving them some autonomy and input into their goal structure. Right. Because we can't
0: 100 percent.
1: You know, the importance of that. So right now, in terms of like mental performance training, if you will, in the field of exercise and in the field of nutrition practice, it is about making a healthier person, maybe not even fit, but at first healthier. So it takes a lot of work on the negotiation side and even maybe the if you want to call it psychology or just mental strategy side to say what four or five behaviors can Mm -hmm. we address without turning your lifestyle upside down initially and just get on the track to better health that that's really where we're going in the beginning because it's hard for people to the most worst thing we can do sometimes is linear exercise prescription when we know it works. We know what the minimum is. We know what the best intensities are. We know what the frequencies are. But I will say two days a week of 30 minutes is a heck of a lot better of nothing for four months. right? right. And that may be our entry into, into exercise and health and potentially preventing type 2 diabetes in that person at 30 years of age so they don't have it at 50.
0: Yeah, that reminds me, it's a quote that I used to give all the time, especially I was doing a a small little intervention. It was a a six-week course called the Daily Move Challenge, where we did five minutes of mobility, so movement prep, foam rolling, and stretching, followed by five minutes of exercise. And you could choose to do more, or you just commit to the five minutes of exercise or foam rolling, preferably both, and then multiple other five-minute exercises. and (laughs) We we basically told people, look, you're not you're not going to change your life in five minutes. You are not going to lose weight because of the five minutes that we did. But what the intention of it was, is to create a daily practice. Exactly. It's five minutes today, and we do it every single day for six weeks. And the, the goal was saying, you know, it's kind of like being in school when you're when you're in school and you write all the time. It's really, uh, you know, as, as much as you might be burnt out, it's easier to sit yeah. down and write stuff because you're so well practiced at doing exactly. it. And then you start doing it not because school told you to do it. You start doing it because that's what you have designed for yourself to do. That becomes part of. Your daily practice that becomes part of your you and who you are, and so finding something that that challenges you a little bit, and committing to do it, and and one of the things that we looked at in the research is that there, there's it doesn't happen without effort, and a lot of times people look at it and go, you know, I'm. I, You lose weight, but never be hungry or lose weight and, but never exercise. You know, like, I don't, I'm not sure what their, their, their goal is. And the the goal isn't to be perpetually hungry uh, or miserable from working out. The, The goal is also to say that there, there may be some discomfort in this journey, but we don't expect you to immediately stop, you know, chopping boards with your hand because you haven't built up to it yet. Exactly. Eventually, you're going to break through. Yep. Eventually, yep. you're going to break through. So develop the calluses. Start the callusing process. Start warming your hand up to hit that board and eventually break through it. That's that's what it is. And I I know that people struggle. Don't get me wrong. I understand the struggles that are there. You mentioned running. Running is something that I do more now than ever. And I'm still not sure if I like it, <laughs> but, but I do it. I do it two, three, four times a week because that's what I do now. It it became, it was something that I just despised of all things, didn't like running and now it's the type of exercise I implement most, not because I love it. I don't dislike it anymore. There's not an active hatred towards it, Right, but. I started building up the calluses. And Mm -hmm. David Goggins very famously said, callus your mind. And I think that that's a, a valuable concept to think about because your body can do a lot of things. It's, you know, your mind puts up many of the barriers and the roadblocks. And so the callusing in part, you know, for us, we need to create a progressive training program. So we can't just throw people into the fire but the thing that gives out most is usually the the mind and Absolutely. that's why taking you know taking small bits of exercise as medicine until you eventually start just making changes in your life i think it's i think it's important for people to understand that and and you mentioned it you were very clear with with that delivery is that when you when you get presented with 150 minutes of exercise a week, that's the supposed to. It's such a monumental number for the right. majority of people Absolutely. out there. They, they they say, well, if that's how much I have to do, I might as well do nothing if exactly. I can't do everything. And I'll go back to the initial quote I used to say in this course all the time, a little bit of something is better than a whole lot of nothing.
1: Absolutely, Rick. You, you, that's it. And And so we're excited, right? Because performance Uh specialist we have degrees and we know 150 is great in minutes we know 80 percent of max heart rate reserve it it can do a b and c and so you can't wait to get that there or you can't wait to deliver to that to someone because and and it's not it's not a bad intent it's not even arguably a mistake it's just where we can't be at that given time adl matters adl really matters Can we increase activity of daily living. My family lives, wants to die at 90 and lives to 100. And they just never worked out, but they ate well. And I'm an advocate of working out. I don't know where they'd be if they did that. They might live to 120. But my point okay. to is, one thing they really were is they were not. Like, let's take that. Yeah, let me phrase it. One thing they were not is sedentary. And one thing they were mm-hmm. was incessantly moving. So ADL is something that could be formalized nicely to your point, adding a bit, five minutes, 10 minutes of extra walking. Okay. Giving somebody, when I worked for Pfizer pharmaceutical, the very company that just came out with the vaccine, I was there 13 years as uh, in, in, you know, playing an integral role in their internal health and wellness. Um, programs for their colleagues. But we bring TheraBands to everyone's desk, have them get up if if they would do it, but we made it available. Get up every 20 minutes and do some retraction exercises to counteract protraction or spinal flexion in front of a computer all day. That's just an example of how we can start or initially integrate some strategies that would be preventative in nature and get people involved in living a healthier lifestyle. The NASM professional is trained to eat, to prepare people at the highest level. And that is awesome. But one thing NASM does well is put so much emphasis on the coaching side so that I think they're gonna be well-trained just to get them into the entry level, which is where 85% of the population has to go. Get the, get them involved initially. And I'll just say one more point that you elaborate on. Find You know, there has to be volition in it. In better words, find the activities they either love the most or, yeah. to your point with your running, hate the least. you right. <laughs> <laughs> and accept them so that they'll take part in that, right? If they play golf tell them to go out and do it. And then we can say, well, we're going to add a couple of things to your golf that will enhance both your golfing program and your health. And, and I think that's the initial strategy. Some people might want to have something that's a little bit more of a hardcore entry. And I understand that, but to reiterate my point, if 85% of the population was gung ho, I would, I would advocate that if 85% of the population is not in, um, Involved in a consistent exercise program, then I think that's where we have to go.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree with that. And then, you know, one of the things for so many people out there is that, you know, you you have to overcome inertia. You have to over an object in motion stays in motion, an object at rest stays at rest unless acted upon by an outside force. Is that outside force? Is that force propelling enough to have us as an object in this analogy? start to move. Mm. And we continually believe that we have to do so, so, so much that we can never get to what we're supposed to do. And when you talk about ADLs, and for for those of you who may not know, and those are activities of daily living. We know that non-exercise activity it does more for our body sometimes than exercise alone, right. especially when it comes to thermogenesis, because we know that, that you're going to burn more calories throughout the day just being more active than you will ever burn in any even aggressive um, uh, one-hour-long session. You, you're gonna You're going to metabolize more calories simply by being more active and doing it more throughout the day. And by doing that, you're going to start to – instead of having this kind of spike in all the good stuff that goes on in your body and and don't get me wrong I I, I I advocate for that however if the challenges are there and like you said people just don't like sometimes higher intensity work then just you gotta move more just move yeah. more or or as one um, dr. Chris Evans says in his talk uh, 23 and a half hours um, just you know spend Less time sitting and sleeping and try to limit that to about twenty-three and a half hours. And what he said by that is to walk at least 30 minutes a day. Exactly. Walking. And and the numbers from walking, Tony, the numbers from the benefits of walking are staggeringly
1: good. Amazing. Just going out for a walk. Amazing. Exactly right. That yes. And and remember, you know, these are entries into everything we do. We are not saying, you know, what will happen is people just might do it, increase the, exos- uh, the activity of daily living, find time. If they have the location, you know, unequivocally, some neighborhoods are very hard to walk in. We we have to accept sure. that, but, you know, but maybe find that park and. But to your point, Rick, also, that walking, if we can get it done or increase the activity of daily living, is what has someone see some results, is what first can have them feeling better. And then it's entry potentially into maybe more advancement and joining the NASM trainer in the gym after that, who can take their fitness program further. So We're trying to get people to understand what everybody in the industry already knows. Hey, you're probably gonna see some changes, physical and mental, just from doing these small things that you're really going to notice, that you're really going to benefit from them and they'll probably engage you and you want to continue them. And if you do, then you can advance the program further. But right now, entry is the difficulty. And another yeah. thing I thought that you said so not right is we have to you have to marry the goal or you have to marry the reason for entry into what's important to them. And sure, it may be health at that time. It may be that they had a child later in life and they want to watch that child go to college. But whatever it is, what are the most important things in their life? What are the goals they want to achieve? Because I think all of us firmly believe if it's your job, if it's your family, if it's being more active with your children, uh, if you want to improve your recreational sports and your golf game, I think we all firmly believe, and we have some research to prove it, you'll be better at that if you're physically active and you eat well. There, there's Cognition improves with physical activity. Mood can improve with physical activity. Self-efficacy can improve with physical activity. Your energy to move with children is augmented by physical activity. So one thing that I really believe in, independent of what someone's goal is, that all of us know at NASM and throughout the health science and exercise science community, you're going to be better at that or better able to advance at that if you're physically active and eat decent. So whatever their goal is. And, and I remember uh, I worked with a CEO of a big company and I told him, hey, we need a little bit more veggies here. You know, he you can't get this an <laughs> diet. And he hated them, hated vegetables. So I found a loose article on one that had a little bit extra serine in it. Okay, <laughs> very loose. That's fun. And then I connected that to concentration and said, look, you're going to be uh... better OK, and he was eating veggies left and right because he was from Scotland and golf meant everything to this guy. So anyway, my point to that is what's important to them and connect what we teach, what we love to that, because it's not false. Exercise is connected and movement is connected to everything we do as a species and it makes us better at everything we do.
0: Oh, man. So well said. I love listening to you talk. I love it. Uh, speaking <laughs> you of, I'm, I'm you getting an opportunity. Thank you, brother. I'm getting an opportunity to ask all the questions that I want. And so uh, instead of being selfish and continuing to do so, let me pop over to Greg and just inquire. Let's see if there anybody that's on the, the Facebook live feed that may have some questions for you that they want to ask. And we'll give them an opportunity to, to have their question answered.
1: Yeah, we have uh, Selena in the chat and she wants to know uh, where did you get your sports nutrition credentials? And do you recommend going to university or going through an accredited program such as NASM? Okay, wonderful. Selena, I think, and, and Selena, that almost comes down to what we just described, really, as in, in essence on how in, how to fit fitness into someone's life. Um the obvious answer would be yes, meaning all if you could. But there are some wonderful university programs available, you know, like University of Bridgeport. These are fully accredited. They've been mastered over the years in an online delivery if you couldn't actually make it to school. And um, so that's one option. If you really love it and have a passion for it, that's worthy of consideration. Please look into that. But simultaneously, like the I'm teaching the Certified Nutrition Coach Certification through NASM right now. And I have to, I'm really impressed. They did a wonderful job. And I'm teaching it to my students. That is certainly worthy of investigation because here's what it does you may already have the foundation that is in that certification, or maybe not, but it'll get you in, it'll get you engaged. You can acquire the certification, and it may lead you further, Selena, to the other things that you have a greater area of interest. You may mm. go to that section and go, I absolutely love this. I'm going to not only do nutrition, I'm going to go into this spe- specialty. So investigate everything because it will teach you about what you want to do with nutrition and where you can have a role in nutrition. So just look into all you can, Selena. It's all worth it. It really is. And and by my certifications or NASM, I'm a certified nutrition specialist. I have a master's in it. So that enables me to have like a, a state certification, just as an overview of my credentials. Excellent.
0: Thank you, sir. What else, Greg?
1: Uh, no, no other questions, but I really enjoyed this comment from Becky. I want to share with you guys because I think you'll enjoy it too. She said, after my third child, I asked my doctor to prescribe 30 minutes per day of exercise so I'd actually do it. He was happy to write it, and that's all I needed. I like how you phrased that, Rick, exercise as medicine. So I thought you both would uh, would find that entertaining.
0: So. Absolutely. I appreciate that. That's actually, so the American College of Sports Medicine their their logo is exercise is medicine and they've been doing a great job with with that content for years and so you know i I tip our hats to to the acsm and and what they've done throughout the years and exercise is medicine and through people like acsm and the cooper institute historically and then eventually this development of not just physiology physiology programs have been around for a long time but shifting it into exercise physiology mm-hmm. and understanding that the the medicine that exercise provides can change the physiology in your body in yeah. so many different ways and so when when you look at exercise as medicine you know what what doses are you on right now What type of medication are you taking? Are you taking primarily aerobic-based or anaerobic-based medications? Are you doing more um, resistance training? Are you doing more cardiorespiratory or metabolic um, conditioning-style training? Like these, you know? uh, How long are you doing it? How many days a week? What would what is the mode? What is the dose? What is the frequency? What is the intensity? Um, Make the make the most of it. I I remember. When I read the book Spark by Dr. John Rady, and I found out that all of the incredible things that exercise does for the brain. And what was amazing to me, we hear about all the times it's good for your vascular system, it's good for your heart, it's good for your lungs, it's good for this. And, you know, there'll be pathology after pathology, diabetes and heart disease and coronary artery and this. And then suddenly there was something that was good. For the brain. And for me, after watching my grandmother go through severe dementia, it's one of the last things that I would ever want to put on my family members. Not that, you know, it was it was a burden for us, but she was like that when I was a teenager. And I would get frustrated with her. And and I was never proud of myself for being upset with somebody. They didn't know that she just asked that same question 20 times and I didn't, I don't want that. So when I read that book, it was one of the things that motivated me uh, to do more kind of cardio respiratory based exercises is I wanted my brain to sustain. Cause I don't want my children to see me or my grandchildren or my wife to put up with me. And, and that situate put up with me, it's a horrible way to say it, but, um, but you know what I mean? And so anyway, there was a motivating factor that was there for me and the benefits of exercise as medicine that support numerous pathologies. And then that one, that one just, and it, it pricked me in just the right way that made me hop up out of my seat and, and start making changes. and certainly even more so when I got an an even bigger poke uh, when I found out that I was type 2 diabetic. So, uh, you know, my my exercise has increased. What I do has increased, and it's valuable to me because I look at it and I see, well, here's my medicine, and it's not the right, best medicine in every situation but it is the best single medication for a plethora of things. It is the single best medication that can help with numerous different things in your body. Does that mean that you don't take any other medications? No, that's not what that means at all. But what it does mean is that it is the single most significant medication that you can implement in your daily life, that helps to increase your activities of daily living, as Tony mentioned, and helps to decrease numerous other pathologies, um, and uh, helps to increase your ability to get over things that you're already maybe being afflicted with, or not get over, but to, to manage things that you might already be afflicted with. So it's important to note, and I think it's really valuable to understand that As we see, exercise as medicine, and it's not just you know foam roll because my my knee may bother me, or stretch because it's going to do this, or do my abdominal hollowing and core support because my low back that I can support that with. That's all important, and it's all exercise, but it's not just about pain, it's not just about um, discomfort, it is about the exercise that can address so many other pathological conditions that we have doesn't fix it necessarily so don't don't be confused with that but neither does any single medication so it's about how we implement and how we we take this medicine of exercise that can help keep us from maybe taking so many other medications in our life how there might be one particular problem but that exercise helps to mitigate many other potential problems as a comorbidity that would come from this initial one. So, anyway, Tony, I'll let you add to that, and then I'll, I'll wrap.
1: It's down. hard because it's it's a perfect summary, and you know, it, it, we have two arms and two legs, and we're not a plant, right? Plants don't move, and they do very well not moving. So uh, they, they they're designed not to. What we do know, just quickly, is ninety nine point nine percent of human existence. Uh, there really wasn't written language or extensive written language. We didn't order in food. We didn't have cars. We had to move, build, hunt, predict weather, predict seasonal patterns. Everything was designed around movement. You you did not sit still and advance yourself or your ability to survive. This is why the brain too, to Dr. Rick's point, benefits so much from movement. You we learn previously as humans when we moved. And therefore movement does not, as Rick stated so beautifully, not only help the cardiovascular system, cardiorespiratory system, neuromuscular or musculoskeletal, but your brain is designed to work in concert with movement, movement to advance itself, advance its knowledge. And the research shows pretty pretty convincingly that the only thing that really can augment neurogenesis and new brain cells to date, almost in any age, is is physical activity. So that just really, it, it reinforces the fact that we are in a wonderful industry and can bring the medicine that Rick spoke to, to hundreds of thousands of people across the United States. So we're in a position not just to change health, but to change the really the direction and the structure of the United States, socioeconomically, politically. Uh, I say politically, you know, on how we find solutions to our health. It's a wonderful position to be in. I think the National Academy of Sports Medicine is also doing a wonderful job in taking the lead in this. And I'm really, really happy to be a part of it.
0: Thank you so much, Tony Ritchie. appreciate you being a part of this conversation i'm more than delighted to have you on board with the nasm scientific advisory board and um you know just a real quick are there any um any any last words and then also um how can people find you how can they get in touch with you if they want to reach out
1: yeah all last words uh just you know, as we discussed, Rick, and we did so, let's let's go help some people to have a better quality of life. A happy people is a happier world, and the world could use a little bit more of that. And uh, I guess I'm, you know, I'm not, uh, you could find me hopefully soon on the NASM website under the science board.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, you could find me. Uh, my My Instagram is from my fighting page days. It's just fight shape, one word. And it's an under slash with my last name, Fight Shape, and it's R-I-C-C-I, or you just look up Tony Ricci I think it comes up. And if you ever need uh, or have a question, I'm happy to at, at Tony at FightShape.net. So it's one word, T-O-N-Y at Fight FightShape, dot net. And please feel free to email, and we can always talk and chat about the things we love in our industry.
0: I love it. My goodness, my,
1: if my dad were listening to this
0: episode, he would have he would say, now this is a, a you know, a, an old saying from an Alabama man, but he would say listening to y'all talk today is like trying to put your finger on a watermelon seed. As soon as you put it down, it shoots off in another direction. And so we were we were all over the boards today and I ain't mad about it. I uh, I enjoyed every bit of it. I enjoyed the um, just the conversation and talking with you and listening to you talk. So Tony Ritchie, thank you so much for being a part of it. Um, for those of you who are interested, if you may want to reach out to me, and several of you have, and I've been able to direct you to to some folks that may have had some uh, yeah, help you get what you need to, to get out of NASM uh, and finding direction on who to speak to about certain things. Um, some of you just asked me wonderful questions about... Uh, tips and tricks, and what are your thoughts on, and I appreciate those as well. So you can email me at Rick.richie R-I-C-H-E-Y, the right way to spell it there, Tony, um, at nasm.org. You can hit me up on Instagram, where I'm most active, richie. Thanks, everybody, so much for listening. Thank you, Tony Richie, for being a part of this. This has been Thank the you. NASM CPT Podcast. All right.